Good morning. Good morning. Uh, today is October 27th, 2019, uh, and uh, here I am giving a Dharma talk. Uh, the title uh, I've selected after some thought <clears throat> is Get Over Yourself. It's a great admonition. Someday I'm going to do that. <laughs> And I wanted to start out uh, with a little quotation. People are probably familiar with it from Zen Master Dogen. Uh, he said, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be confirmed by the 10,000 things. <clears throat> when we, uh, as Hakwin said, when we enter into Zazen Samadhi, uh, everything drops away, including all of our concepts and ideas and programming uh, temporarily uh, about ourselves. It's, it's daunting to realize how programmed we are, and uh, we'll get into that to some extent. Uh, but there's a lot that we can do to make it better, uh, and uh, there's nothing more helpful, I don't think, than Zazen, but there's a lot of other things as well. Anyway, I started out um, when I was casting about for exactly where I was going to go with this topic, um, a woman who is my wife uh, sent me an article Shout out to Chris. Uh, and it's written by a couple of French guys. Um, you may have heard of one of them. First one is Mikhail Dambrun, Dambrun, excuse me. And the second is Mathieu Ricard. And uh, you may know the second guy. He's, uh, he's famous as being the world's happiest man, which is remarkable for a Frenchman. <laughs> um, but... Seriously, he's, uh, he's participated in some of the experiments at the University of Wisconsin uh, run by um, Richard Davidson. I think I've got the name right. Uh, and uh, apparently he's just off the chart in uh, certain brain waves and certain areas of the brain which seem to correlate with uh, a deep kind of uh, happiness. And he's a long, long time practitioner uh, of Vajrayana Buddhism and uh, does a lot of traveling with the Dalai Lama. And he's the son of a French philosopher. They, they wrote a book together called The Philosopher and the Monk, which I have a partly read copy. Um, he's extremely intelligent, and this paper, which I was given, is uh, pretty dense and academic. And so I realized pretty quickly that I can't just be reading from this paper and commenting because it's just too dense. But I want to summarize briefly what he said. Um, and uh, so I'll read a little bit, and uh, hopefully you can bear with me. Um, says, this model proposes that the attainment of happiness is linked to the self and more particularly to the structure of the self. 
We support the idea that the perception of a structured self, which takes the form of a permanent, independent, and solid entity, leads to self-centered psychological functioning, and this seems to be a significant source of both affliction and fluctuating happiness. Contrary to this, a selfless psychological functioning emerges when perception of the self is flexible, that is, a dynamic network of transitory relations. And this seems to be a source of authentic, hyphen, durable happiness. <clears throat> this is a technical term, apparently. Um, let's just say uh, a deep and non-abiding happiness. In this paper, these two aspects of psychological functioning and their underlying processes will be presented, et cetera, et cetera. Um, think that lays it out pretty well. Uh, two kinds of self, the, uh, the unexamined and solid self that most of us grow up with and carry into our adulthoods and probably will continue to uh, have rise up until our death. And then this more uh, fluid and open and uh, able to rise and fall with events and, and adapt to situations and be sensitive to what's going on with other people, uh, this more fluid self. And uh, we can, if we're, if we're locked into that solid sense of self, then usually we're locked into a pursuit of happiness that involves trying to get what we like and avoid what we don't like and we're basically on a roller coaster ride of ups and downs. Uh, sometimes it's mostly downs. A lot of the work on this kind of uh, uh, happiness has been done by this uh, two professors at the University of Rochester, Richard Ryan and Ed Deasy. Uh, I actually took a course from Richard Ryan and spent a lot of time talking with him, and uh, I painted Ed Deasy's house twice, so I feel. <laughs> Which one do I know better? I, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> but it's, it's just, the research is really clear. Um, we, we, we basically sabotage ourselves by pursuing our desires. It, it kind of comes right around to Buddhism. Uh, it's because we want things to be a certain way that we suffer. And, uh, you know, there's just so much uh, understanding of this, at least on an intellectual level uh, today. Um, think, of course, of this course that uh, Chris, my wife and I, and Jonathan Hager have been offering to people called uh, Hello Pain, which also looks at this question of, you know, what is it like when you can accept things the way they are and not get thrown by the fact that they never are the way you want them to be. So when it comes to um, basically seeing the truth of, of our ways of holding an inauthentic self and chasing an impossible phantasm of, of uh, endless happiness based on results and based on other things and basically located outside ourselves, uh, there's nobody better for looking at that, in my opinion, 
<clears throat> whether it's humble or not, hopefully humble, um, than Anthony DeMello. And so my apologies, because I dip, dip, dip into this well many, many times, but he's just right on the money. And I'm going to read something uh, from him. By the way, let me first, for the sake of people who don't know who Anthony DeMello is, uh, he's, he's not alive anymore. He died a while back. Um, but he was a Jesuit priest who was born in India, in Goa, um, so ethnically Indian. And he, uh, I found out uh, when I was researching this that he actually studied with Goenka, who is a very famous Vipassana teacher. And uh, clearly uh, he learned something. And uh, he spent a number of years giving sort of seminars to Catholic lay people, those working in the Catholic Church, and shaking up their cherished views. And uh, this book that I'm reading from is called Awareness, and uh, it's basically a transcription, a cleaned-up transcription of a one such seminar that he gave. And you can actually, uh, you can even see it on YouTube. Uh, at least I've seen portions of it. And... Uh, something you might want to do. Anyway, I'm going to dive into a section where he's talking about labels. It says, the important thing is not to know who I is or what I is. You'll never succeed. And he's made a distinction between I and me. I think where I stands for uh, the authentic self, our true nature, and me stands for our ideas about ourselves, our reflexive self, relative self. It says you'll never succeed. There are no words for it. The important thing is to drop the labels. There actually are a lot of words for it, but <clears throat> none of them obviously are the same as the real thing. As the Japanese masters say, Zen masters say, don't seek the truth, just drop your opinions, drop your theories. Don't seek the truth. Truth isn't something you search for. If you stop being opinionated, you would know. Something similar happens here. If you drop your labels, you would know. What do I mean by labels? Every label you can conceive of, except perhaps that of human being. I am a human being. Fair enough. Doesn't say very much. But when you say, I am successful, that's crazy. Success is not part of the I. Success is something that comes and goes. It could be here today and gone tomorrow. That's not I. When you said I was a success, you were in error. You were plunged into darkness. You identified yourself with success. The same thing when you said I'm a failure, a lawyer, a businessman. You know what's going to happen to you if you identify yourself with those things. You're going to cling to them. You're going to be worried that they may fall apart, and that's where your suffering comes in. Say, I'm a Zen student. I'm a person of insight. I'm a teacher. All those things. It's darkness. <clears throat> that is what I meant earlier when I said to you, if you're suffering, you're asleep. Do you want a sign that you're asleep? Here it is. You're suffering. Suffering is a sign that you're out of touch with the truth. Suffering is given to you that you might open your eyes to the truth, that you might understand that there's falsehood somewhere, 
just as physical pain is given to you, so you will understand that there is disease or illness somewhere. Suffering points out that there is falsehood somewhere. Suffering occurs when you clash with reality, when your illusions clash with reality, when your falsehoods clash with truth, then you have suffering. Otherwise, there is no suffering. And then he goes on. What I'm about to say will sound a bit pompous, but it's true. What is coming could be the most important minutes of your lives. If you could grasp this, you'd hit upon the secret of awakening. You would be happy forever. You would never be unhappy again. Nothing would have the power to hurt you. I mean that. Nothing. It's like when you throw black paint in the air. The air remains uncontaminated. You never color the air black. No matter what happens to you, you remain uncontaminated. You remain at peace. There are human beings who have attained this, what I call being human. Not this nonsense of being a puppet, jerked about this way and that, letting events or other people tell you how to feel. So you proceed to feel it and you call it being vulnerable. Ha! I call it being a puppet. So you want to be a puppet? Press a button and you're down. Do you like that? But if you refuse to identify with any of those labels, most of your worries cease. Later we'll talk about fear of disease and death, but ordinarily you're worried about what's going to happen to your career. A small-time businessman, 55 years old, is sipping a beer at a bar somewhere and he's saying, well, look at my classmates, they really made it. The idiot, what does he mean they made it? They got their names in the newspaper, do you call that making it? One is president of the corporation, the other has become the chief justice. Somebody else has become this or that. Monkeys. All of them. Don't mean to demean monkeys. (laughs) Who determines what it means to be a success? This stupid society. The main preoccupation of society is to keep society sick, and the sooner you realize that, the better. Sick. Every one of them. They're loony. They're crazy. You become the president of the lunatic asylum, and you're proud of it, even though it means nothing. Being president of a corporation has nothing to do with being a success in life. Having a lot of money has nothing to do with being a success in life. You're a success in life when you wake up. I I hear people sometimes bemoaning the fact of here I am, you know, in my midlife, in my 40s and my 50s, and what have I accomplished? But all the things they're thinking about accomplishing are ephemeral. They don't truly matter. If you're a janitor and you know who you are, that's great. You've actually fulfilled, you're fulfilling your life's purpose. But if you're president of the United States and you don't know who you are, you're a failure. He says you're a success in life when you wake up then you don't have to apologize to anyone. You don't have to explain to anyone. You don't give a damn what anybody thinks about you or what anybody says about you. You have no worries. You're happy. That's what I call being a success. Having a good job or being famous or having a great reputation has absolutely nothing to do with happiness or success. It's totally irrelevant. Our society and our culture 
drill it into our heads day and night. People who made it. Made what? Made asses of themselves. <laughs> because they drained all their energy getting something that was worthless. They're frightened and confused. They are puppets like the rest. Look at them strutting about the stage. Look how it's upset they get if they have a stain on their shirt. Do you call that a success? Look at how frightened they are at the prospect they might not be reelected. Do you call that success? They are controlled, so manipulated. Unhappy people, miserable people. They don't enjoy life. They're constantly tense and anxious. Do you call that human? Really hammers us over the head here. And do you know why that happens? Only one reason. They identified with some label. They identified the I with their money or their job or their profession. That was their error. <clears throat> Ramana Maharshi, um, the Indian sage of the 20th century, died I think in 1950, um, said, your duty is to be and not to be this or that. I am that I am sums up the whole truth. The method is summed up in the words, be still. What does stillness mean? It means destroy yourself because any form or shape is the cause for trouble. Give up the notion that I am so-and-so. All that is required to realize the self is to be still. What can be easier than that? I would say what can be simpler than that? <clears throat> it's not easy. Because we're programmed to be in motion. We're, we see the truth outside ourselves and we're always trying to get from here to there. True practice is to be here. But our programming is always to get from here to there. It's, it's, it's something we have to work at again and again. Every time we find ourselves grasping, reaching out for what we think we don't have, just have to come back. This breath, this moment, What could be easier or harder than that? Going to let Anthony DeMello hammer us a little bit more here. <clears throat> He's talking about how uh, easy it is to um, be manipulated by the praise or the blame of other people. He says, do you want to see how mechanical you really are? And then he quotes someone, my, that's a lovely shirt you're wearing. You feel good hearing that. For a shirt, for heaven's sake. <laughs> you feel proud of yourself when you hear that. People come up over to my center in India and they say, what a lovely place, these lovely trees, for which I'm not responsible at all. This lovely climate. And already I'm feeling good until I catch myself feeling good and I say, hey, can you imagine anything as stupid as that? I'm not responsible for those trees. I wasn't responsible for choosing the location. I didn't order the weather. It just happened. But me got in there, so I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good about my culture <clears throat> and my nation. How stupid can you get? I mean that. I'm told my great Indian culture has produced all these mystics. I didn't produce them. 
I'm not responsible for them, or they tell me this country of yours and its poverty, it's disgusting. I feel ashamed, but I didn't create it. What's going on? Did you ever stop to think? People tell you, I think you're very charming, and so I feel wonderful. <clears throat> I get a positive stroke. That's why they call it, I'm okay, you're okay. I'm going to write a book someday, and the title will be, I'm an ass, you're an ass. <laughs> that is the most liberating, wonderful thing in the world when you openly admit you're an ass. It's wonderful. When people tell me you're wrong, I say, what can you expect of an ass? <laughs> disarmed. Everybody has to be disarmed. In the final liberation, I'm an ass, you're an ass. Normally the way it goes, I press a button and you're up, I press another button and you're down, and you like that. How many people do you know who are unaffected by praise or blame? That isn't human, we say. Human means you have to be a little monkey, so everybody can twist your tail and you do whatever you ought to be doing. But is that human? If you find me charming, it means that right now you're in a good mood, nothing more. And it means I fit your shopping list. We write books about being controlled and how wonderful it is to be controlled and how necessary it is that people tell you you're okay, then you have a good feeling about yourself, how wonderful it is to be in prison, or as somebody said to me yesterday, to be in your cage. Do you like being in prison? Do you like being controlled? Let me tell you something. If you ever let yourself feel good when people tell you that you're okay, you are preparing yourself to feel bad when they tell you you're not good. And as somebody once told me, one aw shit is going to wipe out a hundred attaboys. As long as you live to fulfill other people's expectations, you better watch what you wear, how you comb your hair, whether your shoes are polished, in short, whether you live up to every damned expectation of theirs. Do you call that human? You may fit the current mood or trend or fashion. Does that mean you've become okay? Does your okayness depend on that? Does it depend on what people think of you? Jesus Christ must have been pretty not okay by those standards. You're not okay, and you're not not okay. You're you. I hope this is going to be the big discovery, at least for some of you. If three or four of you make this discovery during these days we spend together, what a wonderful thing. Extraordinary. Cut out all the okay stuff and the not okay stuff. Cut out all the judgments and simply observe. Watch. You'll make great discoveries. These discoveries will change you. You won't have to make the slightest effort. Believe me. So much of our wanting our practice to go well sabotages our practice really is, as he says somewhere else, and as I've said maybe 20 other times, if we come at practice with the attitude of a scientist who just wants to study things for the sake of knowing about them, if we just look into ourselves with curiosity, we, we can get so much deeper and understand so much more clearly than when we're trying to attain a goal. The goal sabotages us. 
It's fine to want to be more understanding. It's fine to want to have insight. It's fine to come to to want to come to awakening. But if you bring that into your practice, you're not going to be able to do it. At some point or other, it has to drop away. Um, <clears throat> It's this business about the praise of others is one way in which we uh, improve our self-image. Another way is to be virtuous, to do virtuous actions, and uh, and then we're able to have a better opinion of ourselves. It's another way to sort of shore up the uh, beleaguered self. And remarkably enough, Anthony DeMello has something to say about that. So I'm going to go in for a third time, and then <clears throat> third time is the charm. He says, I'm not saying there's no such thing as pure motivation. I'm saying that ordinarily everything we do is in our self-interest. Everything. When you do something for the love of Christ... And this is talking to Catholics, of course. Is that selfishness? Yes. When you're doing something for the love of anybody, it is in your self-interest. I'll have to explain that. Suppose you happen to live in Phoenix and you feed over 500 children a day. That gives you a good feeling? Well, would you expect it to give you a bad feeling? But sometimes it does. And that's because there are some people who do things so that they won't have to have a bad feeling. And they call that charity. They act out of guilt. That isn't love. But thank God you do things for people and it's pleasurable, wonderful. You're a healthy individual because you're self-interested. That's healthy. Let me summarize what I was saying about selfless charity. I said there were two types of selfishness. Maybe I should have said three. First, when I do something, or rather when I give myself the pleasure of pleasing myself. Second, when I give myself the pleasure of pleasing others. Don't take pride in that. Don't think you're a great person. You're a very ordinary person, but you've got refined tastes. Your taste is good, not the quality of your spirituality. When you were a child, you liked Coca-Cola. Now that you've grown older, you appreciate a chilled beer on a hot day. You've got better tastes now. When you were a child, you loved chocolates. Now you're older, you enjoy a symphony. You enjoy a poem probably still enjoy chocolates, actually. <laughs> You've got better tastes, but you're getting your pleasure all the same, except now it's in the pleasure of pleasing others. And then you've got the third type, which is the worst, when you do something good so that you won't get a bad feeling. It doesn't give you a good feeling to do, do it. It gives you a bad feeling to do it. You hate it. You're making loving sacrifices, but you're grumbling. How little you know of yourself if you think you don't do things this way. If I had a dollar for every time I did things that gave me a bad feeling, I'd be a millionaire by now. You know how it goes. Could I meet with you tonight, Father? Yes, come on in. I don't want to meet him. I hate meeting him. <laughs> I want to watch that TV show tonight, but how do I say no to him? I don't have the guts to say no. Come on in. And I'm thinking, oh God, I've got to put up with this pain. 
It doesn't give me a good feeling to meet with him, and it doesn't give me a good feeling to say no to him. So I choose the lesser of the two evils, and I say, okay, come on in. I'm going to be happy when this thing is over, and I'll be able to take my smile off. But I start the session with him. How are you? Wonderful, he says. And he goes on and on about how he loves that workshop. And I'm thinking, oh God, when is he going to come to the point? (laughs) Finally, he comes to the point and I metaphorically slam him against the wall and say, well, any fool can solve that kind of problem. And I send him out. Whew, got rid of him. And the next morning at breakfast, because I'm feeling I was so rude, I go up to him and say, how's life? And he answers, pretty good. And he adds, you know, what you said to me last night was a real help. Can I meet you today after lunch? (laughs) Oh, God. That's the worst kind of charity when you're doing something so that you won't get a bad feeling. You don't have the guts to say you want to be left alone. You want people to think you're a good priest. When you say, I don't like hurting people, I say, come off it. I don't believe you. I don't believe anyone who says that he or she does not like hurting people. We love to hurt people, especially some people. We love it. And when someone else is doing the hurting, we rejoice in it. But we don't want to do the hurting ourselves because we'll get hurt. There it is. If we do the hurting, others will have a bad opinion of us. They won't like us. They'll talk against us. And we don't like that. (laughs) What a mess. (laughs) It's ironic because so many of our efforts are, you know, no matter, no matter how far you've advanced in, in your practice, there's, there's an alarming amount of your time is spent trying to shore up an image of yourself. As he says, there, there probably are people, maybe Ramana Maharshi is one of them, for whom this doesn't apply. But, and it's ironic because to the extent that we succeed, to that extent we actually sabotage ourselves. And I'm going to turn now to some studies that uh, have been done about people who have made it. People, we can say powerful people, wealthy people, virtuous people, uh, people who are acknowledged to be virtuous and kind and helping. All those evaluations of others, when we buy into them, cause us problems. So this is an article that appeared in the Atlantic in uh, the July-August issue of 2017. It's by a guy named Justin Renteria, Renteria, and the title of the article is Power Causes Brain Damage. He says, if power were a prescription drug, it would come with a long list of known side effects. It can intoxicate. It can corrupt. It can even make Henry Kissinger believe that he's sexually magnetic. (laughs) But can it cause brain damage? And then he recounts the case of the CEO of Wells Fargo uh, at a congressional hearing, just totally tone deaf to the outrage that... uh, the practices he'd endorsed at Wells Fargo, which involved setting up fake accounts for customers and basically bilking them out of money, um, were egregious. 
says he looked disoriented like a jet-lagged space traveler just arrived from planet Stumpf, that's his <laughs> last name, where deference to him is a natural law. Uh, even the most direct barbs, you have got to be kidding me, or I can't believe some of what I'm hearing here, didn't seem to get to him. So what was going through Stump's head? <laughs> Great name. New research suggests that the better question may be, what wasn't going through it. He says the historian Henry Adams was being metaphorical, not medical, when he described power as a sort of tumor that ends by killing the victim's sympathies. But that's not far from where Dacher, Dacher Keltner, a psychology professor at UC Berkeley, ended up after years of lab and field experiments. Subjects under the influence of power he found in studies spanning two decades acted as if they had suffered a traumatic brain injury, becoming more impulsive, less risk-aware, and crucially, less adept at seeing things from other people's point of view. And then another guy, Sukhvinder Obi, a neuroscientist at McMaster University in Ontario, in Canada, recently described something similar. Uh, he, Obi, who doesn't, unlike Keltner, who studies behaviors, Obi studies brains. And when he put heads of the powerful and the not-so-powerful under a transcranial magnetic stimulation machine, he found that power, in fact, impairs a specific neural process, mirroring that may be the cornerstone of empathy, which gives a neurological basis to what Keltner, the first guy, has termed the power paradox. Once we have power, we lose some of the capacities we needed to gain it in the first place. This loss in capacity has been demonstrated in various creative ways. A 2006 study asked participants to draw the letter E on their forehead for others to view, a task that requires seeing yourself from the observer's vantage point. Those feeling powerful were three times more likely to draw the E the right way to themselves and backwards to everyone else, which calls to mind George W. Bush, who memorably held up the American flag backwards at the 2008 Olympics. Other experiments have shown that powerful people do worse at identifying what someone in a picture is feeling or guessing how a colleague might interpret a remark. Says mirroring is a kind of mimicry that goes on entirely within our heads and without our awareness. When we watch someone perform an action, the part of the brain we would use to do that same thing lights up in sympathetic response. It might be best understood as vicarious experience. That's what Obi and his team were trying to activate when they had their subjects watch a video of someone's hand squeezing a rubber ball. For non-powerful participants, the mirroring worked, worked fine. The neural pathways they would use to squeeze the ball themselves fired strongly, but the powerful groups, less so. Was this response broken? More like anesthetized. None of the participants possessed permanent power. They were college students who had been primed to feel potent by recounting an experience in which they had been in charge. The anesthetic would presumably wear off when the feeling did. Their brains weren't structurally damaged after an afternoon in the lab, 
but if the effect had been long-lasting, say by dint of having Wall Street analysts whispering their greatness quarter after quarter, board members offering them extra helping of, helpings of pay, and Forbes praising them for doing well while doing good, apparently Forbes wrote an article about this uh, Stumpf guy that said exactly that, they may have what in medicine is known as functional changes to the brain. I wondered whether the powerful might simply stop trying to put themselves in others' shoes without losing the ability to do so. As it happened, Obi ran a subsequent study, and this time the, su the subjects were told what mirroring was and asked to make a conscious effort to increase or decrease their response. Our results, he and his co-author Catherine Nash wrote, Nash wrote, showed no difference. Effort didn't help, which is kind of depressing. <clears throat> the sunniest possible spin, it seems, is that these changes are only sometimes harmful. So in powerful, in the powerful, uh, having power primes our brain to screen out peripheral information, which may provide an efficiency boost to the powerful. <clears throat> yeah, this is a little dangerous. Power lessens the need for a nuanced read of people since it gives us command of resources we once had to cajole, cajole from others. But he says the sheer number of examples of executive hubris that bristle from the headlines suggests that many leaders cross the line into counterproductive folly. And when we're talking about headlines, of course, that also makes me think of all the Zen teachers uh, who have gotten themselves uh, in trouble and damaged their sangha and uh, undermined people's faith in the Dharma through their uh, manipulation and abuse of power. Uh, it's, it's really kind of almost a tragedy. And it's not just Zen teachers, of course. It happens, as Roshi points out, in every religion. It happens in other areas where people... Uh, it happens in psychology. It was alarming for me when I realized Carl Jung had sexual relations with uh, patients. It's, it's, it's kind of the danger zone when you're in a position of power uh, is something that happens to human beings. It's not that assholes get rich and then they continue to be assholes. People get rich and they become assholes. Um, it's you know, and um, maybe we're those of us who aren't so powerful and who have sympathy for others. Maybe we wouldn't maintain that if uh, everything went our way. Can maybe speak of the disaster of spiritual attainment. It's extremely dangerous for someone to have some sort of insight and then take it on as a, as a attribute of theirs to be one of the enlightened, to take an experience as saying something about their self, the true self. It's, it's, it's really... And, and it's and it's it's kind of pathetic also. Uh, 
somewhere that someone said, some attainment, maybe it was the Buddha, some attainment is the jackal's yelp, no attainment is the lion's roar. Most insights are tentative, can be life-changing for sure, but even with a deep experience, some of the worst actors in the world of Zen teachers are reported, who knows, reported to have had very, very deep awakening experiences. But even a deep experience doesn't wipe out karmic tendencies. It doesn't change the habits of a lifetime. It gives us some insight into them. But the work of integrating insight into our lives is so much harder, so much more difficult than having that initial awakening experience. It's really it's incumbent on us to make sure we maintain our sympathy, our connection with other people. And we can't do that when we're full of ourselves. It's, it's, that's why I say it's ironic because, you know, we do want to do good things. If we have a career, we want to succeed. If we're practicing Zen, we want to make progress on the path. But when we give ourselves credit for that, we're taking our eyes off the ball and we're undermining ourselves. It's tricky. It's, it's a, it's, we're stepping into quicksand. It's difficult. There are a lot of aspects of practice which uh, uh, tend to uh, work against this tendency to self-inflation. Um, there's one that's traditional in Buddhism, and that's the awareness of death. Roshi's spoken about this uh, quite a bit. The fact that uh, the fact of the certainty of death and the uncertainty about the time of death, the fact of us, the fact that it's something that will come to all of us. There's an Italian proverb that says, once the game is over, the king and the pawn go back in the same box. All the mighty, all the virtuous, everyone will die. Um, the Buddha said, there are those that forget that death will come to all. For those that remember, quarrels come to an end. I have a friend who uh, mentioned him before, uh, worked in a toxic environment, working for CNBC or I think it was FN, I don't know, financial news network, FNN, uh, getting it set up, worked night and day for a year, seven days a week, and then got a vacation and probably had a heart attack. And while he was lying on the gurney, he realized the resentment and anger he had against some of his colleagues and realized he had to let it go. And he did. After he recovered, which he did, <clears throat> that enabled him to tell me the story, he went back to those guys and, and basically told them. And uh, some of them got it, and some of them didn't. But he got it. Uh, it's difficult uh, to really take in the fact and the inevitability of our death. Um, the Buddha talked about in one of the one of the sutras, I think, about how uh, some people, uh, when someone dies in a distant village, 
they realize the inevitability of death and they take up the path. They, they start walking the path. Other people, when someone dies in their village, and then other people, when someone dies in their family, and then other people, when they themselves are on their deathbed. Um, and uh, there's an article, which I don't have time to read from, which shows that the brain actually has mechanisms that protect us, quotation marks, from actually acknowledging uh, our connection with death. Uh, just really briefly, they showed people uh, they showed people a picture of a stranger and a picture of themselves, and a picture of a stranger and a picture of themselves. Same stranger each time, just going back and forth, back and forth. And uh, sometimes when they were showing the picture, they would overlay it with a word. There'd be a word there. I'm not sure if the people could even see it. It might have been taken in subconsciously. And it would be something about death or, uh, you know, funeral or a word associated with it. And then at a certain point, they would show a picture of somebody else, somebody who hadn't been seen. So what they're looking for is that sudden, you know, little jump in the brain when something unusual shows up. And um, if that picture of the third person showed up uh, normally, they would see that. But if it had shown up after there had been a word about death, that shock of recognition didn't happen. Basically, the brain had shut down because of the association of death with their own picture. Um, it's kind of a interesting and difficult to explain, and I'm glad I didn't try to read the whole article. But um, it's just it's something to acknowledge that basically it's built into us, probably for environmental reasons, uh, not for environmental, but for evolutionary reasons, that we don't really take in the reality of our own death. Uh, our job as far as evolution is concerned, is to make more of ourselves, to pass our genes on, and evidently awareness of death isn't the most helpful thing for that. <clears throat> Although you could argue differently. Um, another thing that we do that helps a little bit with sort of tamping down our self-importance is prostrations. For a lot of people who come into Zen practice, that's... Uh, a bit of an obstacle, just feels weird and foreign. Um, but as Roshi Kaplow used to say, it's a way to horizontalize the mass of ego. And it, it really can help to do prostrations wholeheartedly, to get the head down on the floor. Um, the sixth patriarch of Zen, Winang, said, the object of bowing is to break the curtain of self-intoxication. So why not put your head as low as the ground? Cherishing pride is committing a crime, while forgetting your merit brings joy beyond measure. I really like that last phrase. Forgetting your merit brings joy beyond measure. Getting out of that trap of being up or down, of being a success or a failure, is liberating. It's like Anthony DeMello says, to say I'm an ass is liberating. It's not what we're here to do, to be a success. As Ramana Maharshi says, we're here to be, not to be this way or that way. And practice is a way that leads us to that. That's what Zazen is for. As Dogen said, to study the self is to forget the self. As I expected, I've chewed up all my time. I'm going to close with a quotation from one of the 
ancient Chinese masters, I think it's Fa Yen, but I'm not positive. He said, when will you ever stop competing? Before you realize the scenery of spring has turned to autumn, the leaves fall, the geese migrate, the frost gradually grows colder. Clothed and shod, what more do you seek? We'll stop here and recite the four vows. Beyond measure, I bow.